This is RDQI. Animation is one of those things that we probably engage with on a day-to-day basis, whether it's watching a cartoon or a Pixar movie, or just seeing some animated character on a commercial. But not many of us really know how the sausage gets made there. And so I'm really excited that Ryan and I brought in our good friend, Laura, who's a professional animator, to give us a behind-the-scenes look at her craft. It's often overwhelming looking at a technical craft that we really don't have any experience with. But really, when you think about it, and when you start trying to make connections, you realize that technical crafts have more in common with each other than you think. And that's exactly what we illustrate here by connecting what Laura does in animation to what Ryan does in music and audio engine. This one is really neat, so stay tuned after a word from today's show sponsors. Is dipping it once not enough? You're looking for the double dip, aren't you? Well, come on down to Chicago Dales. We don't dip our beef just once, but twice. Yes, that's right, twice. Why is that? Because you get more ajou. That's right, Chicago Dales. Come on down, we'll dip your beef twice, and you'll be splendidly happy. That's right, splendidly happy. Chicago Dales. Hey, Ryan, remember that music conversation we had a couple weeks back? Yeah, uh-huh. Music and manipulation. Manipulating music, yep. Yeah. Favorite topic of yeah. mine. <laughs> so one of our mutual friends is an animator and she loved that episode and the contrasting the cooking uh, language with music language and she really just wanted to try and see if she could make similar parallels with her medium which is animation and it just so happens that uh, we have laura right here what hey. do you know hello Welcome to RDQI, um, Laura. It's good to have you. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm excited to be on this. So why don't I'm gonna ask you a question, Laura. Um we've talked about this before, but what made you think about this music and animation parallel? Um, I think like when I first started becoming an animator or learning how to animate or kind of teaching myself how to animate. Um, I used music in a lot of different ways to, to time out my animations, to kind of get myself into the mindset for what I was animating. Um, so for me, animating animation and music are, uh, they're very closely connected, um, in my own process. And, um, you know, I've, after having worked with animators, uh, in a professional environment for a long time, like you just you pick up on how animators use sound and music to describe their work and to give feedback. Um, and it's just always been a very important aspect of animating for me. Um, uh, you know, growing up, one of my favorite movies is Fantasia and that is just like this, this perfect. Yeah. Yeah. This perfect marriage between music and animation. Um, and it's just, it's just such a, a really cool concept to kind of dive into and, and extrapolate like what's happening with music composition, what's m- happening with animation composition and how they're so closely linked. But what, what kind of language would you be using with, you know, in the professional sphere, your peers? I mean, cause I find this is fascinating all the time when talking about anything related to audio is how do you describe sound? Cause the English language really mm-hmm. doesn't have many words dedicated to sound. So what kind of language mm-hmm. are you using for animation? Uh, well, so there's, there's some language that's like embedded into animation practice. Um, and, and it, so like animation 101 is you're learning about these 12 principles. Um, and uh, a lot of them are, I, I've found that they just seem so similar to words you would use to describe music. So like rhythm, timing, um, anticipation, ease in, ease out. Um, these are all describing motion, right? Because animation is, is visuals in motion. That's, that's what, um, you know, fundamentally animation and music are incredibly similar because music is just sound dynamic in time and animation is movement dynamic in time. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, so do you ever, do you ever, I mean, I, I'm not an animator, but do you ever use sound words to describe animation? Like the rhythm of 
a, something that you're animating? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, you're always talking like timing is just one of the core components. Like you can tell immediately if, you know, when you're a, a seasoned animator, when timing is off, um, sure. when yeah. like, uh, and like, you know, timing and weight, it's all adding like laws of physics to drawings or, right. Cause the, or the end goal is objects. to, the end goal is to basically convince the viewer that what is being displayed to them is actually happening. I mean, obviously we're suspending disbelief to achieve that, but that's the mm -hmm. idea is we want it to replicate some measure of reality. So you can tell mm -hmm. a story or, you know, whatever your actual goal is, right? Yeah, totally. Gotcha. Okay. And so um, what kind of, okay, so I've never heard of these. I don't even know there were 12 principles. I mean, I don't <laughs> think we have time to go through them, but what are some key ones that really stick out and connect to music, do you think? I think rhythm, timing, um, ease in and ease out. Uh, what, what's ease in and ease out? Ease in and ease out is... Um, you know, when a movement is, it's, it's basically acceleration, um, and deceleration. Uh, so when you're, you don't just jump into a fast paced something like you, you ease in to it and you ease out. And obviously you can't see right now, but I'm making a hand gesture <laughs> where I'm kind of, I'm, I'm replicating what you would see in a, in a graph. And, and I'm wondering if, so let's take something like let's 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 take a cartoon that okay. we can kind of visualize. So let's SpongeBob, okay. unless you want to do unless you have a, a better cartoon. <laughs> SpongeBob is fine. Um, but if you're if we're talking about like let's think of a very simplistic scene where you know SpongeBob opens the door to his house and like walks to his boat car and mm -hmm. drives away. So so his boat car. <laughs> <laughs> he does have a boat car. <laughs> he does have a boat car. He lives in a pineapple under the sea. Um, <laughs> What, what do you mean, where does ease in and ease out apply to that? Um, so it's basically the motion doesn't just stop and start like that. Yes. <laughs> I'm trying to, I'm trying to articulate this without getting like really technical right off the bat. Um, right, go for it. Go for we'll it. try and we'll simplify. Um, so in 3d animation, uh, it's not, obviously you're not dealing with a drawing. You're dealing with like a 3d puppet. Um, so if you think about like stop motion animation, um, where it's a, it's a physical object that every frame you're moving, mm -hmm. um, that's essentially what 3d animations, it's like a 3d puppet. However, you're not doing in every single frame. The computer handles a lot of that in betweening. So, um, a lot of that is handled with a, what's called a graph editor, which takes every part of the body that you're moving and you can, you can see it. You can see the character in in this three dimensional space that you can rotate around. But you can also see this um, this representation of of graphs on an X Y Z um, like three dimensional mm -hmm. space on just like it, it just looks like rainbow spaghetti, pretty much. Um, I don't <laughs> gotcha. know if you've ever seen this in any type of like behind the scenes animation thing, um, no. but but that way you can kind of see movement represented in in arcs and lines that are just, um, oh. to me, to me, when I think of when I used to look at, um, like old school CD players and they would, you'd watch the music happening and it kind of moves in these lines oh, kind yeah. of where it goes like up and down or whatever. That's sometimes that I, what I think of when I'm looking at the graph editor so, because huh. you're yeah, okay. seeing movement represented in, 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 yeah. And X, Y coordinates, X, Y, Z coordinates. Oh, okay. So if I'm getting this right, so if you're in your 3D animation, whatever, you know, program you're using to do this, you have mm -hmm. SpongeBob isn't a great example because that's not 3D. At least I don't think it no. is. Um, Let's do Toy Story. Yeah, there we go. Toy Story. Yeah. Classic, <laughs> right? Okay. So if Woody is standing there and he's standing totally still and he raises his mm -hmm. hand to wave his hand hello to someone, mm -hmm. what you're saying is you could basically, if there's a point fixed on his hand, you can mm -hmm. see just that point moving through space and that's a way to yeah. kind of control and coordinate animation. Yeah. And you can manipulate those, those graphs and, and that will manipulate the movement gotcha. um, that's happening. Um, so you can see the movement happening, but you can also see the movement translated. It's kind of, it's taken me a long time to like see through the matrix to see, to be able to look at a graph editor and see movement instead of just looking at the screen. But 
you, but this comes in, in, uh, particularly handy when you're thinking about things about ease in and ease out, because you want to see a nice, uh, a nice clean arc when you're, when you're looking at emotion, like sometimes like I'm looking at an animation, I'm like, ah, oh, this looks really like janky and, and broken and, and jittery. And I look at my graph editor and there's just these, these, like these jarring, you know, not smooth, um, lines, I guess. And, and that's a good way to be like, oh, this isn't clean. I'm not easing into this. I'm not easing out of it. Gotcha. Um, and that, yeah, that reflects in like very smooth, entrance and exits to movement okay so it sounds like your graph editor is um or sh- let's, let me try and use this analogy it sounds like if animation is a car it sounds like typically you're sitting in the driver's seat steering the wheel to get the animation you want right you're turning left <laughs> turning left but what you're talking about <laughs> is like when you see problems it's like okay let's open the hood and look at the engine and really mm-hmm. see yeah. what's going on here it's definitely yeah it's it's definitely more of the under under the hood Gotcha. Way to look at things. So you're an animation mechanic as well. Interesting. I I guess I never thought I'd say that um, because I I have just like felt so much more like stronger in the artistic side of things and and like to rely on my eye to see. Sure. To just see the animation. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. But yeah, it is a very it's it's a densely technical <laughs> medium. Oh uh, <laughs> yeah. Can do it. I mean, it must be. I mean, I, mm-hmm. it's funny, like, in the audio world, there's a, there's a lot of really nitty-gritty technical details you have to get right. And for the most part, like, a home recording enthusiast can kind of skate past those, past those problems because they're not mm-hmm. just... It's Recording audio is relatively simple in the pantheon of things that computers can do, right? It's not super complicated. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of little things that if you don't know to keep technically correct, you're just going to run into these problems that you don't know how to fix. I mean, one mm. of the big ones in audio is phase issues. And what, what phase is, is basically, um, if you have multiple microphones recording one sound source, let's say a drum kit, all those mics are spaced differently in the time-space continuum, if you will. And mm-hmm. so sound travels at a constant rate, well, relatively constant rate, and it'll hit you know, a sound source being activated, let's say a snare drum, it'll hit all those different microphones in the room at a different time. So they'll be slightly out of phase with each other. Now, sometimes being mm-hmm. out of phase is actually good because it gives us a sense of space. Like reverb is a good example. Right? The reason mm-hmm. we add reverb to things is because it makes us hear someone's vocal or a drum kit, whatever is being recorded in a different room. And how you do that mm-hmm. is you add different sound sources over time, right? Um, so I can see how understanding the nitty gritty and understanding how to really get under the hood is going to help an animator just be much better at creating great animations. Yeah. Another thing that I'm, I'm thinking about as I'm listening to what you're saying is um, I, I've always wanted to talk to a musician about like musical composition, because um, to me, like when you're making an animation, you're making a composition, you're layering all sorts of different movement on top of each other. So it moves together in this like orchestrated, um, you know, piece of piece of art. Sure. Um, and I know music is like that too, right? Like you're, you're just layering things on top of each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you're, you're organizing them and you're composing them so that they complement each other and that they play off each other. And that, uh, there's a, a basic rhythm that everything is adhering to, um, but it's all moving within one composition. Um, and that is that is very much what animation feels like to me. And I'm curious, I guess, about how that relates to what to what you guys do. Do, do you have... Um, so if I'm thinking about music, mm-hmm. what you're saying is spot on, but the genre of music... Um, the instruments that play, the the different ambiance that the engineer wants to create, mm-hmm. very dramatically, right? I mean, uh, a heavy metal song is recorded much, much different than a um, jazz record. Yeah, or, or mm-hmm. you know, blues a blues record, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, same same instruments theoretically, but totally different placement within the orchestra, mm-hmm. right? Right. Um, 
do you is there something similar in animation like do you have different composition setups depending on what you're trying to do yeah i mean i think i think you mentioning jazz right now um and i don't correct me if i'm wrong is jazz kind of freeform like is it just kind of like we're just gonna like go for it and, and just run with it what uh, is jazz that is a great question um i, I swear i have a this really just good became a four connection. and a half hour podcast no, but i think you bring up something interesting because a lot of people i mean jazz is an american art form and yet most americans don't really know what jazz is right they just I kind sure of assume don't. it's someone on a trumpet noodling around a bit right you well i saw this i saw noodling. this uh this video of a hedgehog just walking over a piano and someone just put a like a, a simple drum beat in the back <laughs> and it sounds <laughs> like jazz <laughs> well right it's, yeah 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 so huh. yeah there's yes. a lot of things that jazz is and isn't i don't know right. if you want to dive down that rabbit okay. hole i think the real quick one though is this is that jazz the concept of jazz is hey there's sheet music which is to say the um, person conducting the orchestra is telling you what to play and exactly how to play it and when to do it. And in mm -hmm. jazz, it's like, yeah, let's start with that sheet music, but we're going to open up these spaces during the song where we let players improvise. And then, mm -hmm. so that that started to kind of open this door to reanalyzing how we create compositions as musicians, right? It's not just a structured, mm -hmm. you know, beginning, middle, and end. You can kind of play around mm -hmm. with that. And so then eventually you get to this theoretical place that we're at now with jazz, where it's like the only way to rearrange music further is to get really weird with it, to have a porcupine <laughs> crawl across a piano and have a drummer in the background. <laughs> so I, I totally get what you mean. Like it makes sense. Yeah. And that's why it, jazz is so tricky to name in a lot of ways is because it's kind of by definition trying not to be named. Yeah. So I think a good parallel here that I want to draw is uh, one of the principles of animation is, um, straight ahead versus pose to pose animation. Um, and what that is, is so you think of pose to pose animation, you think of like, before we go into animate, we have the key frames mapped out. So we have, um, the whole composition, you can see it timed out and just, let's say, let's say it's an animation of a guy picking up a book, reading it and putting it back down then you can time that out, but you can only, you only have about like five or six drawings because those are the key frames and those are timed out and the beats that they're there, those key frames are going to hit. And then we go in and in between all the, the drawings in between. Gotcha. Whereas, okay. whereas, so that's mapped out and it's, it, the composition is like very, uh, set in stone before you go in and actually animate. Um, whereas straight ahead, I think allows for more improvisation um, because you just kind of, it's called straight ahead animation. What you're doing is I imagine a porcupine just walking over a piano where you kind of know where you're going, but you're not, you're not, you, you're not hitting key poses and it's not mapped out entirely. Right. So you're not um, tied to certain markers or frames mm -hmm. in particular that you have to hit. Yeah. Gotcha. I mean, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. Because I would imagine that in the mapped out sequence, it's probably a practical issue, right? You're probably receiving a brief of some degree saying, we just need this exact animation for whatever purpose. Mm -hmm. Right? So obviously, yeah. why why do the straight ahead model? If you simplify your life a little bit, let's just do it, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas I would imagine the straight ahead is a little bit more of a creative endeavor, where it's the reason there hasn't been milestones is because we don't really want to find them yet. Yeah. And, and I, I have yet to like really encounter straight ahead animation in my career aside from things like animating hair or like cloth where it's based on the movement that's already created. Mm. Um, it's, Reactive. it's called like secondary. Yeah. Secondary overlapping animation where it's like, I'm just going to animate this based on the physics of what's already happening here. Yeah. Um, okay. But, but like, and, and, from a professional standpoint and I work in video games. So like a lot of that is based on like what the designers want and they want things that are very specifically timed to like gameplay inputs and stuff. So, uh, I don't often do straight ahead animation in my job, but in my like personal animations, I find myself doing it that way. Um, it seems a little bit more freeform and a little bit more like I can just kind of let animation like organically grow out of me almost mm -hmm. um 
Which I think is always fascinating because Dave and I have talked about this concept of the medium is the message. And we're not going to get into that. But basically the idea is whatever medium you're working with, whether it's you have a piano and you're going to make music that way, or if you have a computer Mm -hmm. that has the right animation software, you're going to make animations that way. But by Mm -hmm. the very nature of sitting at a piano, you're going to make music differently than if you sat down and there was a guitar there, right? So Mm -hmm. what I'm trying to say is, does it feel like the straight ahead method is more, it's more like you're playing with the abilities that you have as an animator rather than trying to mm. achieve a specific goal? Totally. Yeah. I, th- what I'm seeing in my head is that straight ahead in music is you get a bunch of talented musicians together, you hit record and you kind of play this loose song, but you're improvising and you're, you're, you have the ability to capture serendipitous you know, things that happen in that kind of music. Whereas a pop song is you, before you hit record, you know exactly what needs to happen where, Mm. and you're just sort of filling in the gaps. You know, it's 120 BPM. It does not vary. It's very, it's structured. Um, and, and you're just putting the, the secret sauce in between. Yeah. Is that, that does sound oversimplified. (laughs) No, no, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, I, I think the idea of the sitting down and jamming on a piano and, and playing with the natural abilities, I think, I think that's a wonderful way to describe it because I found myself really like doing straight ahead animation when I was learning how to animate, because that I was just feeling out how to like exercise my sense of weight or my sense of timing or, or, um, rhythm. Whereas I didn't have all the I didn't have all of those things built into like, you know, the DNA of what I'm doing so well yet. Yeah. And now that I do, I can, I can go about it being a little bit more structured about it. If that makes sense. No, I mean, that makes entire sense to me. I think that's the value of, so when I work with, especially if I work with a band, let's say who I'm working as a producer. So my job isn't just to record the material and get it to a, you know, an MP3 form that you can listen on Spotify, but it's also to help them generate the material itself. And that's where I think jam sessions are really important. You know, the straight ahead, just like, hey, you know, the guitar player has a riff and he just wants to play and see what the rest of the band does with it. And it's exploratory. And if you record it and you listen back to it later, you usually think 98% of this isn't interesting at all, but there were 2% of like really good moments. And then from that little seed, a song can actually grow. Um, which is always an interesting dynamic to try and be a part, like the, like being the fifth Beatle, right. You know, being George Martin, who (laughs) is the fifth person there, he doesn't, well, he actually did play on a lot of their records, but he didn't, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't a core member, but without that person, without their expertise of understanding how to use the tools to translate everything across the board, um, it's really difficult to execute a really good recording. Kind of like I would imagine if you don't know how to animate and you just tried to do it, you'll probably have months of frustration and you have a really Mm -hmm. bad animation at the end. I would imagine at least, right? Oh, totally. There's so many bad animations that have to come out before the good ones do. (laughs) Do you ever, do you ever find yourself acting in a, in a producer type of capacity? So let's say, you know, there's a, and I want to, I want to talk a little bit about like animation in general, cause I don't think a lot of people know all that much about it, but you know, you have a, so in 3d animation, what you do professionally, there's somebody who actually designs the 3d character. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they pass that on to you to animate the movement and the actions and all that. Mm-hmm. Do you ever, through what you're doing, do you ever go kind of back to the character designer to say, Hey, you know, this and this and this doesn't work or the way that I'm animating this and it's interacting in this environment, I think you should tweak this. Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't know what the equivalent would be down the line, but do you ever, do do you, um, kind of act in that way at times? Yeah. A lot of times I'm talking to, the rigger who is like the liaison between the character modeler and me, which is basically the guy who builds the skeleton inside the character and, and um, hooks up all the different points of articulation to the body and and makes it. So when I basically lines up a bunch of like controllers so that I can grab his hand, move it 
and grab his fingers and, and move them and rotate them. Um, that's usually who I would talk to, but there's been some instances where it's like, ah, man, like this guy's clavicle is just like the way that it bends when I do this, just like it's, it's getting these really harsh corners. I think like, I mean, it's not, I'm not the one that's making that call to like spend the money to do it, but it's definitely something that I can talk to. Like, you know, in my job right now, I sit next to a character modeler and we're, uh, we're constantly being like, ah, when I animate it this way, like, uh, it just makes his, his biceps look weird. So, so on that note, animation is, um, I think it's something that a lot of people take for granted. You watch Pixar movies and you think, okay, great. Like this, you know, that's great. <laughs> this is a great movie. <laughs> I like it. Um, you and I have talked about this a number of times, Laura, but the, what really got me thinking, wow, this is a cool art form is you describing to me sitting in the park and watching somebody rollerblade. Mm-hmm. Um, can you kind of give a description of like how you think about movement as an animator and how, and how difficult it really is to, to do that? And then like, think about Woody, right? Woody is operating in a totally different mechanical way. Cause it's a puppet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, well it's, it's a really interesting mix of like observation, like recreating reality and then acting. Cause a lot of the times you're just, really trying to breathe life into this character and not only make it look like he's physically moving correctly, but we know what the character is thinking and we, his personality reads. Um, when I'm looking at somebody moving in a park or, um, you know, the way a cat jumps and, and you're, for me, I'm thinking like, where is the, motion starting from like where where is the momentum starting from a lot of the times with humans uh it that's going to be in the hips like the hips is what drives motion because we're grounded and and you know everything kind of starts from that center of gravity um it's all in the hips (laughs) (laughs) yeah um but uh a lot of times I'm kind of thinking about like, I'm kind of like closing my eyes and thinking like, okay, where is this motion starting? Where in my body am I feeling like it's starting and and going? Um, Where am I feeling weight being distributed? Um, And then, and then mapping that onto the character. Um, I I do notice, I think it's kind of funny. There's like a lot of um, animators who are like very athletic, uh, I've heard it in the industry. It's like, oh, animators are all a bunch of jocks. Like, <laughs> like either like, uh, uh, either like, you know, really crazy comedians or jocks. Um, and a lot of the times when I'm animating stuff, I'm recalling times that I've done these things myself. Um, and a lot of the times you're getting up and you're acting out, you're recording yourself act, acting so you can see it. You can also feel it. Um, and it's a mix of both like seeing motion, being able to see it and then recreate it and know what's driving it and know where it's going. Um, and then also just kind of like, uh, I don't know. I think I'm, I'm just rambling and restating the no. same things. over and over. No, no. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm trying to, as you're talking, I'm thinking, well, wait a minute, if I was going to stand up and start walking, I would just, I would move my leg. That'd be the first step. But saying the hips, I'm like, oh yeah. So then I'm trying to think of how I how I walk, and now I'm not sure that I can anymore. <laughs> I think I'm stuck. Are you gonna be able to get home? <laughs> Help! <laughs> but it just goes to show. I mean, I remember you you showing me an animation of rollerblading, and you were describing how um, you know with the momentum of the of the push forward, like what do your hands do? Mm-hmm. Which is not something that anybody would think about. If I, if you saw an animation of somebody rollerblading and it was done correctly, you'd just say, yeah, that looks like a person rollerblading. Mm-hmm. But if the hands were doing something weird, mm-hmm. the person viewing would know right away, this is not right. Yeah. Um, at the same time, and this is what I, this kind of parallels with the conversation we're having, Ryan, about music and, and manipulation. There is an element of both music and animation that wants to capture a form of reality, but it's also a somewhat distort, not distort, but maybe distortable reality. Um, You know, Mm -hmm. you can exaggerate, you can... Exaggeration is another 12 principle. 
There we go. Way to go, Dave. The, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but to what level do you try and, and show something exactly the way it is mm-hmm. or with a little bit of flair and exaggeration so that that person is, you know, rollerblading, but it's, you know, they're, they're rollerblading like it's trying to show like really fast motion and, mm-hmm. you know, explosive landing if you're jumping and, and stuff like that. Um, how do you, how do you think about like where, what level of exaggeration you're trying to go for? Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I think that's like a genre based question. It's like, Oh, are we going for realistic animation or are we going for like comical and stylized? Um, you know, think of, think about like, uh, what's a realistic animation? Think of like a naughty dog game. If you guys like last of us or, um, you know, right. they mm-hmm. use very realistic motion capture animation where it's, we're trying to like nail reality. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Or like any and, sports video game is trying to simulate yeah, reality totally. to some degree. Right. Yeah. And then think of like anime, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, where it's right. these like ridiculously pushed poses and like, they're really playing with timing and, and like, uh, just the appeal of the animation. They're really, making these dynamic poses and they're really like stretching their characters and, and, uh, you know, just making a wild ride of a cartoon. Like it's, it's a genre based question, I think. And, and, you know, a lot of the times, like, uh, it's like, how do you reinvent the wheel on those things? Like comical and stylized. And like, there's these like core pillars. Like you look at anime and you know, it's anime. You look at like a Looney Tunes cartoon and you know, that like when that character goes off the cliff and just stands there for a little bit and then like his body drops, but his head is still in the air. And then suddenly <laughs> it's like, pew, he's down on the ground. Like, you know, those are, those are like Warner brothers, Looney Tunes cartoons. It's almost like they have their own physical realities within different mm-hmm. genres. Totally. And that I'm sure music is the same way, right? Like oh, there's yeah. rules to jazz. There's rules to metal. There's rules to, I don't know, pop. Yeah, and there's rules to how you translate that in a recording and get it across. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Like you can't break the rules until you know the rules. Right, 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 right. I think I think that was something that I learned, or somewhat a, a professor or something mentioned that about South Park uh, when I was in school, where it's like South Park is breaking all the animation rules. Like they're not adhering to a lot of things. They're not really like using anticipation in a lot. Of, uh, mm-hmm. You know, it's just very like, it's got a style of its own, but those animators know how to animate, mm-hmm. you know, you can tell that it's grounded in, in a framework, uh, but it is breaking the rules. Right. Yeah. And it's the I same. think anybody, anybody who practices a, a profession, um, gets to a level of mastery where they feel very comfortable breaking the rules because they're so comfortable with the rules. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Yep. If you know why you can break the rule, that's yeah, easily the biggest step in that process. Can you think of any any producers, Ryan, that that are good examples of like or or even, you know, band slash engineers knowing the rules and then breaking them anyway? Yeah, m- most of the major artists you think of at them. Um, <laughs> so are there any rules that they all break the rules? <laughs> well, I mean, yes and no. So let's take the Beatles cause they're kind of a classic case. They're the easiest to talk about. Um, they broke all the rules because at the time, the way that people thought about recording music was let's capture a performance, right? So let's set up the mics appropriately in this room. That's been acoustically tuned a certain way. Let's make sure all the musicians are happy and feeling good. They'll hit, we'll hit record and voila, at the end we're done. And the Beatles came along and most of this is tied to technology that was available. I won't get into super nerddom about that, but basically tape recording got to this point in the mid sixties when the Beatles were really hitting their swing of saying, oh, we can actually record a take and then record a secondary take afterwards over the top of that. And we'll have control over both sounds. Which, if you're if you're an orchestra, that has no value to you, right? You're not going to overdub a solo, you know, in Tchaikovsky. It doesn't happen that way, typically. But the Beatles were like, whoa, 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 wait. So you're saying we could do a live performance, 
And then on a separate track that something that's never existed before, we could record us all like pretending that we're in a yellow submarine and issuing orders. <laughs> yeah, you could do that. Oh, and then you have the yellow submarine, right? So it's more so, I think, in recording technology, and Dave, you and I have talked about this too much, but the technology available will always define how to break the rules, right? So in this case, the Beatles mm. knew that they could break the rules of having a layered performance because they had new tools that allowed them to layer performances, right? Kind of mm -hmm. like early recordings, the most popular music for early recordings was opera, mainly because mm -hmm. they didn't have microphones back then. You had to literally sing into that old horn, you know, that you see on a record player. That was the microphone. Mm -hmm. You had to sing into it. Are you serious? Yeah. So what? So and then while this is happening, there's a little stylus actually cutting wax as you record. Like that's how you record performances. So if you had someone really mild, mild manner and talks very gently, tried to record with that kind of a medium, you're going to get nowhere. So what do you do? You get someone loud, like, I don't know, an opera singer. <laughs> so if you look up the name Caruso and see that he has a famous operatic career, you also have to tie that to the fact that at the time, his voice was the best thing to be recorded as far as the <laughs> technology was. Thus, it became popular to listen to opera music at home. So there's a there's a weird like technological cycle that's built into it, it with music at least. Well, I, I mean, you, Laura, you probably know more about the history of this than I do, but I mean, I think Toy Story was the first like of that Pixar style of. Mm, I think of, so too. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and that changed the game. <laughs> yeah. I don't. I don't even know if there was 3D animation before that. Yeah, there was, but it wasn't anything yeah. like it. I know it caused like, you know, Disney. You know, started to go 3D. You know what I mean? Yeah, and like, you yeah, start yeah. to see them just shift into less 2D animated movies. I think Princess Frog. I think that's the name of it. Was the last 2D animated? Really. Um. I think yeah, so. I guess. I, no, I think you're and right. Then, yeah, Princess and the Frog. I think so. Yeah, Princess and the Frog. Um, but yeah, yeah, like that definitely changed the whole landscape now. And now it's this whole 3D versus 2D world, you know. Well, and and I, so I was watching uh, the second Kung Fu Panda a few days ago, <laughs> and it's yeah. you know has that Pixar 3D style, mm -hmm. but they do these flashbacks, and they're really kind of, they're 2D, very mm -hmm. highly stylized art you know within the movie itself and it i just yeah. thought this is so cool because it's it's sort of breaking the rules mm -hmm. and then you know i and i actually would love to hear you talk about this laura but the the spider into the spider verse oh movie my God. um I could talk forever about it yeah i mean i'm watching that and thinking like i don't so good. i love this i don't even understand what this animation style is but it's so yeah. amazing they're definitely uh pioneering something new right now that you're gonna you're, you're probably gonna see a lot of people trying to adapt and use that kind of style what is that though like what makes that it's hard to i mean they definitely went for like we're gonna do like a 3d comic book and we're just gonna use like crazy colors <laughs> you know it's hard for me to like actually pin down what they're doing um but i just think you're gonna see a lot more of it you know, that, that was like the first movie, 3D animated movie that's come out where I was like, oh, this is new. Like, this is yeah. something new. Um, because I think like, I think there started to become, especially when I was in school, there there was this little mentality of like 2D versus 3D. And it was like, oh, you're just going to be another 3D animator. Like, you're just going <laughs> to go and work on. Work the, old, on uh, the old school is being bitter about you young folk coming up. Kind of, kind of. But I, I kind of see like a renaissance happening with, with 2D animation where people want to see it back. And like, if you, if you are familiar with the game Cuphead at all, um, mm. it's all like hand drawn shell, uh, shell, cell shaded, mm -hmm. uh, animation that harkens back to the 1940s, like, um, you know, that style. And that game just like wiped the floor, you know what <laughs> yeah, I mean? With, with so, with everything, like it was just such a, a great, like artistic, artisanal accomplishment. Um, and I, I see, I, you know, like 
the the comeback of like pixel games you know a few years ago sure i i see a renaissance coming with like two with 2d animation and i think like spider-verse really hit a sweet spot there where where it kind of married all these things that people love and want to see um yeah we I, I mean even in the music world especially on the recording side there's plenty of examples of the same thing you know people who go back to old school vibes and try to record even though like in a very cutting edge recording system they'll use but then they'll manipulate the audio after the fact to make mm-hmm. it sound like it was recorded in the 50s basically yeah right totally and I, personally i love trying to do that because there's a lot of creative control as an engineer which you don't always mm-hmm. have um but i wonder is that a desire for like something nostalgic based like oh i just want to hear that old 50s record sound or is it just a extension of the palette of options? I don't know. I mean, I also tend to think that like, like right now we're like in the nineties, you know, fashion wise, we're kind of doing, doing, we're kind of circling back and putting a modern spin on like, on, on stuff that we're far enough away from that it's nostalgic now. Like, I think we're kind of like, <laughs> like I remember being like, oh man, I like 2000s style stuff like just let it die let it stay dead it was like so bad but then like you get far enough away from it to where it's like a a period piece almost and then suddenly it starts to come back and you're like yeah like give me like choker collars and, and <laughs> right uh, you know like flannel again like give it to me mm-hmm. um i feel like a lot of uh you know i think that's just kind of how pop culture tends to move right yeah that's a good point yeah there's an element of nostalgia but then there's also this excitement of seeing something that is old but new and done in different slightly different ways mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is just what's i don't know what's so appealing um i was really taken aback by that band greta von Fleet. i literally just thought of that so good i was just floored but that's that's tugging on our Led Zeppelin heartstrings, but doing it in a new and modern way. Yeah. And yeah, I think, I think that's the first thing, because you sent that over to me, Dave. You're like, hey, check these people out. My yeah. first thought was like, oh, yeah, you know, I've heard Led Zeppelin before. <laughs> but the way they're doing it and the way they're pulling it off is just different. But, yeah. mm-hmm. I mean, Robert Plant could probably sue them. Like, you stole my vocal style. <laughs> <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Probably. Yeah. But then I think about like what actually goes into like recreating that sound so specifically. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I, I don't know if that's like an easy thing to do, but when I think about like, okay, you got to get a band together. You got to get everybody on the same page. You have to come up with new music that is essentially in the exact same spirit. <laughs> we, uh, everybody has to really like Led Zeppelin a lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. But I think it's so, kind of interesting because, I mean, all of us have heard Led Zeppelin, right? But say you're born 10 years ago and you're introduced to Greta Van Fleet somehow at the age of 10. You don't know who Led Zeppelin is, right? So mm-hmm. that could sound like the coolest thing in the world to you. And then eventually you, that individual, when they're 11, might realize, oh, there's this other band called Led Zeppelin, right? So it, it still gets you interested, the listener interested in music, which I think is the beauty of it. Mm. So I want to talk about squash and stretch because I think <laughs> okay. there's a really interesting parallel here. So what I understand and correct me if I'm wrong, Laura, but if I think about like animating a ball, mm-hmm. when the ball hits the ground, if it's bouncing, let's say the ball kind of like flattens and then bounces back. Mm-hmm. And then I'm reading on Wikipedia, it lends weight and flexibility to objects mm-hmm. Because if you were just to animate a ball going down and hitting something going back up, but you didn't animate like the changes to the object itself, mm-hmm. it would look very, it would look like Pong, like MS-DOS Pong. Yep. Um, and, and Ryan, I know that you, when you are taking the different components of sound to try and do different things, you're, you are stretching and squashing oh, yeah. that sound. Yeah, mm-hmm. entirely. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Oh, I'm, I want to hear about this. Well, now I want to hear both of you because this is me having no expertise in either of these fields, just <laughs> trying to make a connection. So, <laughs> yeah, no, let me let me take a stab at it first because there's some other words I want to throw in. Um, yeah, squash and stretch. We wouldn't. I mean, that's not the exact language I've ever heard any engineers use. Nest. Well, that's not even true. Squashing, like a form of compression, you could say you're going to squash this. Mm-hmm. And compression is really, really simple, and it's also really, really difficult to hear its effects. So it takes. It, it took me three years after four years of college to actually hear compression, if that makes sense. So mm-hmm. here's how it works. Take a signal, a waveform, obviously, and you're going to compress the top end of it. So you're going to say, I want 3 dB less of this signal. I'm going to compress it by 3 dB. And decibels are just the numbers we use to correlate to sound. And so you think, why would you want to make something quieter? Well, the answer is if you, after you compress it by 3 dB, if you, on the back end of that, if you then gain it or turn it up by 3 dB, what you've done is you have the same volume of information in terms of amplitude, like how the peak of that signal, but you've essentially turned all the quieter sounds built into it up by three, by three decibels. So through that method, through squashing, you actually make something sound louder and closer to you, even though all you've really done is made it smaller. And what's interesting, I think, is your use of the word, your use of the word weight, Mm because music should have weight to it. And I'm like, you can't see me, obviously, but I'm moving in a certain way. Like the way that when you're dancing, how you, you know, uh, you tend to accentuate the downbeat or maybe the upbeat, depending on what your dance is. That, to me, is the weight, right? And how you achieve that through sonic, like as an audio engineer, how you achieve that is typically a little bit of squashing in a very, very careful way, um, compressing. And then sometimes it's adding some reverb, some delay, something else that kind of um, encourages motion, right? And it tricks the human brain into thinking that there's, that there's movement happening from the sound source. So that sounds a lot like what you're talking about in an animation world. Yeah, that's super interesting. And stretching too. I mean, um, you know, think about like a guitar strum and you're holding it. And, you know, if you have distortion on that sound, it's going to kind of really resonate and kind of stretch out. But Yeah. Mm Yeah, but you're doing the same thing. I mean, reverb is a form of stretching. Is that if that's not too much of a stretch? No. <laughs> oh, jeez. Got to make one every episode. <laughs> Check gotta it make off a the dad list. joke every episode. Um, that's so cool. I had no idea that 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 was something that is done. Yeah. But, yeah. So in, in animation, I mean the the ball example I think is is more like lending reality to what it looks like. But do you ever use a uh, stretching and and uh, I forgot the other word <laughs> squash squashing in a um, like like in a stylized way or to bring about an effect or something? Totally. I mean, like the squashier and stretchier you get, you're gonna like really articulate what type of substance whatever you're animating is made out of. Like you can make something feel really rubbery and hosy and really just loose if you really exaggerate the squash and the stretch. Um, whereas if you're a little bit more realistic with it, like if you if you took a recording of you know a ball like um, you know like a ball that you'd get out of like a vending machine mm-hmm. um, and just watch the it bouncing rubber ball, yeah, yeah, and then you played it super slow. There is like it does change shape like ever so slightly yeah. when it hits the ground and when it goes up. Um, and, but when you look at it, it doesn't look like that really. You know what I mean? You just see a rubber ball. Yeah. So it, it basically, it's like how far you're pushing that is how much more style is stylized and cartoony you're going to make it. Um, and you know, weight. So like the combination of like weight, basically like you can articulate all the, we can look at a bouncing ball and we can hit every single 12th principle looking at that. I mean, you can do that with any animation, but mm-hmm. a bouncing ball is just like a very simple way to do it. It's usually like your first and your last assignment. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but like, uh, like combining weight, you know, you can, if you, based on how 
heavy you make that ball look based on like the timing and the spacing in the arcs and the squash and stretch that's happening as you animate this ball is going to make it is going to tell you, is this a ping pong ball? Is it a bowling ball? Is it um, a rubber ball? Is it a tennis ball? Is it a cat toy? Like, you know, all of those things. And I imagine, you know, because you're, that ball doesn't actually exist. You know, you're just adding and layering all these different elements to convince the viewer that's what you're looking at. Sounds exactly like yeah. It sounds exactly like the way I think when I'm mixing a record. Yeah. Yeah, you're adding things and subtracting some things to make the listener believe it's real. Now, what's always fun is the conception of the philosophic conception of what is real and how real. What do we is need, real? I was right? just going to ask that. Like, how real do we <laughs> need to be, or should we intentionally be manipulating "quote unquote" reality to make it sound like the 1950s? Yeah. So I have a question that's like, so if you look at a ball and bouncing, you can tell that it's wrong because everyone's seen a music, uh, uh, sorry, uh, a bouncing ball and they've seen a bowling ball fall and they've seen a ping pong ball fall. Like you can tell if it's wrong, but with music, like how do you tell it's wrong? 